This morning's lesson is a very simple lesson. This morning's lesson is a very straightforward lesson. But I want to keep it as simple as possible, and I want to be as straightforward as possible, because it is a very important lesson. But the title of today's lesson is, Becoming a Member of the Central Union Church. And this morning, as we discuss how one becomes a member of the Central Union Church, there is three groups of people that I want to specifically address. First of all, we're going to go through the lesson today, and we're going to talk about someone who is a non-Christian. Someone who has never put on Christ in baptism, has never professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and done those things that are necessary in order to become a Christian. That's the first group of people we're going to talk to today. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that you'll listen very carefully. A second group of people we're going to talk about today is what we might call someone who is a Christian, but because of some public sin or because of some long absences from the community that we call the Central Union Church of Christ, we're going to address what that person needs to do in order to be in a right relationship with God once again. And then the third group of people we're going to talk about today uh, is the group of people that uh, are members of the Lord's body already, but they may have moved into this area or they may have uh, come over from another congregation, uh, but they never have clearly identified themselves as far as the work that is being done here and being a part of it. So we have three groups of people today we want to specifically address, but the sermon is beneficial to all because our young people need to understand these things, and those of us who are older who perhaps have heard these things before need to have those things clearly reinforced in their minds so they will have the opportunity when it comes up to teach another person about these things, they'll have those things uh, strictly or or very uh, very well enforced in their minds. So we're going to be dealing with those particular things. Now, before we start talking about uh, the different groups of people, there's one thing I want to make sure that we understand and appreciate, and that is that there are two essential parts in a person's salvation. There are basically two parts involved in a person's salvation. The very first part is the most important part. The very first part is the part that we should put the most emphasis on because it is the part that without it there could be no salvation whatsoever. And that particular part is God's part. God's part in the plan of salvation. And it can be summed up by one word, the word grace. When you think about God's part in the plan of salvation, the essential part, the most important part, is God's grace. And there's a number of passages we could bring out, but very quickly, um, because we have so much material to cover, Uh, The passage that Glenn read for us a few moments ago from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, points out very clearly that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not anything that we have done. It is a gift of God. And it's not any kind of works we can do because um, that doesn't earn us anything. We do not teach a salvation that's based on works of merit. It is all by the grace of God. And Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 reminds us that the grace of God that bringeth salvation has now appeared unto all men. So in other words, God's grace has now been extended to all men. 
It's only by His grace that we're going to be saved. There's nothing that we can do on our own as far as our own works, our own merit, anything that we could quite accomplish that would anyway cause God to say, well, you've earned this, you deserve this, because there's no way in the world we could ever do anything like that. In fact, the passage over in Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, Jesus makes the point, when you have done absolutely everything that you could possibly do that you've been commanded to do, you should still look at yourself as an unprofitable servant because you really haven't done anything. It's all by the grace of God that you're going to be saved. This is the main part. This is the most important part. Without this part, we would be hopelessly lost. But the next part, as far as essential parts of, in man's salvation, is man's part. Even though the Bible is very clear that man does not uh, earn his salvation, even though man cannot do anything to force God to save him, but yet man has a response to the grace of God. And it too can be summed up in one word. And that one word is obedience. Obedience. We still have to do works of obedience. These don't earn anything. These don't cause God to look at us in a different way as far as us um, meriting something. But yet God expects obedience. In fact, a passage we could put up on the board here in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Jesus very clearly says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And then to illustrate the point, beginning at verse 24 and going to the end of the chapter, we have the very familiar parable about the man who built his house upon the rock and the man who built his house upon the sand. Well, now, we sometimes get caught up in the song that goes along with that for our children, and we think about how the man that built his house upon the rock, when the rains and the storms came, his house stood firm, and the man who built his house upon the sand, when the rains came, his house was washed away. But don't miss what the whole point of the thing is. Jesus says what is being illustrated here is the man who obeys the will of God. He's the man that has the solid foundation. A man who does not have a solid foundation in obeying the will of God is like standing on quicksand. So we can depend upon the grace of God, but if we're not willing to obey His commands in order to become a Christian, then we have no foundation. We're just going to slip away. We're going to be washed away. We're going to be lost. Well, that being said, that we understand that God has a part in our salvation, the most important part, and we understand that man has a response to that grace called obedience, and we understand the fact that Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 and Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 remind us that all of us are sinners, then we understand that we need to obey and respond to the grace of God. So the next thing we're going to deal with this morning is, what must a man do to accept the gift of God? Now that question right there sums up the two parts I just talked about. Notice, it has the gift of God. This is something that God gives us. It's a gift. It's not anything we earn. But yet there is something man must do to accept this gift. There's the old illustration of how that if I held a $100 bill up here and I said this gift is free to anyone who will take it, somebody would get out of their seat hopefully and come up here and get that $100 bill. That's why I did not hold one up today. 
It's free. You don't have to do anything for it. I'm not going to cause you to come to my house and paint my house or wash my windows or, or anything like that. It's free, but you've got to reach out and take it. And so that's what we've got going on here. And I think a good way to illustrate this is by looking at three, very quickly, three different accounts in the book of Acts. You're aware of the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about the life of Jesus Christ. How He was born, how He lived, what He preached, how He fulfilled prophecies, how that He did great and wonderful miracles, how He died on the cross and He rose again the third day. The purpose of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John is to get us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The book of Acts follows and it tells us how people responded to their belief in Jesus Christ, how they became Christians, how they became a part of the church. Now let me say right here, before we go any further, that all a person has to do to become a member of the Central Union Church of Christ is what's stated in the Bible. We have no other creed book, we have no other uh, manual, we have nothing but the New Testament and what it says as far as what a person needs to do to become a Christian, become a member of this church. Once you've done what the Bible says, we ask nothing more of you. In fact, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the reason why I picked the background that I picked is because we have before us a blueprint or guidelines or instructions of what a person needs to do to be saved. It is found in God's Word. And that's all we ask of you. So let's look very quickly at three biblical examples. The very first one takes place when the very first time that the gospel is preached on the day of Pentecost, on the birthday of the church, when the very first people responded to their belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When Peter came to the conclusion of his sermon there in Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Verse 41 of that same chapter says, And they that gladly received that word were then added unto them, or added unto the church. And 3,000 people responded. Now notice that they understood that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They believed that. And Peter told them to repent and be baptized so that they could have their sins removed or remitted. Look at another example very quickly. Over in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 35, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch or some translations say, a treasurer of the queen. In this story, of course, Philip gets into a chariot with a man who had been traveling back from Jerusalem. He had been worshiping in the city of Jerusalem. He had been reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, and when Philip got into the, tra- uh, into the chariot with him, he, um, he, he asked him, do you understand what you're reading here in this chapter? And the eunuch says, well, do you, is he talking about himself or some other man? And the text says that Philip began from that scripture and began to preach unto him Jesus. And as they were traveling along, they saw a certain water off in the distance. And the eunuch said, see, here is some water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest, thou mayest. And the eunuch said the most beautiful words a person could ever say. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It says he commanded the chariot to stand still, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and then Philip baptized him, and then they both came up out of the water, and the Spirit called away Philip, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. 
Notice that he preached unto him Jesus, and when he preached unto him Jesus, somewhere in that conversation, baptism came up. Philip didn't bring it up. The eunuch did. And they went to a body of water. They both went down into the water, signifying that this is something that takes place in the water. It's immersion. And the rejoicing took place after he was baptized. One other count. As I said, I'm going through these very quickly for the sake of time. In Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, we had the story of the Philippian jailer. You remember how Paul was in prison in the middle of the night, at midnight? There was an earthquake, and, and the entire uh, group of people who were in that prison were suddenly set free. And the man who was responsible for the prisoners was about to take his own life, and Paul stopped him. And then picking up the text, he asked Paul and Silas this question. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul Paul told him, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and all your house. And then he began to preach unto him Jesus. And as he was preaching unto him Jesus, this jailer took Paul and Silas and took them to his house. He washed their stripes. He gave them something to eat, signifying that here is a man who had repented. And then he was baptized that same hour of the night. Notice it began, Paul saying, you need to believe, and let me tell you about somebody you need to believe in. Then there was repentance involved. Then there was baptism involved. Notice it took place as soon as that man understood what he needed to do to be saved, even though it was after midnight. It may have been 3 o'clock in the morning, but he understood what he needed to do. Now, As I said, these are just three examples of conversion stories in the book of Acts. There's others, but I don't have time to discuss them this morning. But I want you to think about for a moment, if you start encapsulating all these things, just these three stories together, what we come up with. First of all, it's very obvious that a person, if they're going to be saved, that they're going to have to hear about Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, says... For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they believe without a preacher? Then verse 17 of the same text says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's where it all begins. Somebody's got to talk to you about the gospel. And that gospel leads you to believe as we've seen in these stories. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 and verse 24, If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 reminds us that without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Because we do now have faith in Jesus Christ, we realize that we no longer can have control of our own life. He needs to be our Lord. He needs to be our King. We need to change the direction of our life. It's something called repentance, metaneo, which means to do a reverse, to change direction. And therefore, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, He says, Nay, except ye repent, you'll all likewise perish. Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17 and verse 30, he says, There was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Repentance is very important if we're going to be saved. But also, as we see in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, there's something else that's required of mankind. If a person wants to be saved, they need to be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We saw that in the story in Acts chapter 8. 
But Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, that if we're willing to confess uh, His Father before men here on this earth, that Jesus will confess us before His Father. And if we deny our Father before men here on this earth, then Jesus will deny us in heaven before His Father. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 reminds us that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But we also know, by looking at these passages, that the final thing that happened, the difference from being saved and not being saved, from not rejoicing to going on and rejoicing, to being a part of the family of God and not being a part of the family of God, to being a member of the church or not being a member of the church, to be a part of the kingdom or not part of the kingdom, to having our sins still and not having our sins the final step is always baptism. There are a couple of things missing in these as far as the things I said, but each and every one of those, in fact, in every single case we have in the book of Acts, it always ends in baptism. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 5, except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. The last thing that the preacher Ananias told Paul before he could be saved in Acts 22 and verse 16, he says, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul had faith. Paul had repented. He had even prayed. He had fasted. But until he was baptized, his sins had not been washed away. So, those of you who are not Christians here this morning, I want you to think very carefully about the things that I've said. I want you to think very carefully about whether you have done those things or not. If you have done those things then you are a Christian. And if you are a Christian, then you've been added to the church. There's nothing more that you need to do. But if you've not done those things, please, before it's everlastingly too late, please respond to the grace of God by obeying His commands. Let's think about a second group of people today. And that's this particular group of people. What about the erring child of God? Now, we use that phrase, it's kind of an old-fashioned phrase, but what it means is someone who perhaps was a member of this congregation, but for whatever the reason may be, they may have been absent to the point that, uh, from the services and whatnot, absent from the fellowship of the church, that people really aren't sure. Do they consider themselves still a member of this church? Do they still consider themselves a Christian? Uh, the Bible very clearly, clearly teaches that a person can fall away. Uh, So there's that curiosity, but more important, the necessity of knowing whether or not that person is still called themselves a faithful member of the Lord's church. The Bible's very clear in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 that we need to be faithful until the time that we die. Be thou faithful unto death. Now, obviously, all Christians sin. Christians are not perfect. There's no way we can be perfect, but God expects faithfulness. My wife Karen, as nice as I am and as wonderful as I am, she cannot expect me to be a perfect husband. I'm close, but not quite there. She can't expect me to be a perfect husband, but she can expect me to be a faithful husband. That's what God expects from from us. We maybe mess up and whatnot, but it's all about faithfulness. 
It's not about perfection, it's about direction. What direction am I trying to head my life in? So we're talking about people who have been absent from the Lord's body for quite some period of time, and, and their, their faithfulness is up in question. Or it may be somebody who has committed some type of public sin that people are aware of, and that sin has not been resolved in some way or another. Yet, once again, we wonder how people have reacted to the fact There is the necessity of understanding or not whether or not this person is a right relationship with God. So let's deal with this particular issue. What about the erring child of God? Well, Acts chapter 8 and verse 22, we have a very interesting case study. There was a sorcerer or magician by the name of Simon who decided to become a Christian. He heard the preaching of uh, Philip there in the city of Samaria And he saw the uh, miracles that Peter and John had done, and this person decided to become a Christian. But he had a problem after he became a Christian. He hadn't got rid of his old habits, his old self. And here was a man who was interested in having all the money he could get. Here was a man who was interested in having his ego built up. Here was a man who was more interested in earthly things than he was spiritual things. So he comes up to Peter and he says, Peter, if I slip you some money, How about give me some of that power you got? Now, he didn't want that power to confirm the Word of God. He wanted that power to have his own entertainment show, if you will. He wanted to be one of those modern-day faith healers so he can get big crowds and say, look what I can do. Well, Peter rebuked him. In fact, in verse 22 of Acts chapter 8, he told him, you need to repent. Here was a man who was a Christian, but he had messed up. And Peter told him to repent. You need to change. You can't do this. You've got to repent. In fact, the Bible is very clear that involved in this is some confession and some repentance. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9 through 9 remind us, it says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. There's that direction thing. Not perfection, but direction, walking in the light. And then he goes on in the next verse, and he says, If any man says that he doesn't sin, well, he is a liar, and the truth's not in him. Emphasizing the point that we are going to mess up. But then in verse 9, he gives us the key to someone who needs to respond to messing up. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James chapter 5 and verse 16 reminds us that we're supposed to confess our faults one toward another. And so... We look at this particular situation and the way that a person would confess and respond, uh, whatever their situation may be in their relationship with God, if it's something that you've done that's just between you and God that only you and Him know about, then talk to God about it. If it's something that is known by a few people that needs to be taken care of because they're well aware of the situation, well then go to those people and that's all it needs to go. But if it's something of a public nature, then it needs to be publicly brought forth that I was wrong, I need to confess, I need to make things right, I need to let this congregation know that I'm once again in a right relationship with God and I want to be a part of the Central Union family. In fact, verse 24 of the same chapter in Acts chapter 8, after Peter telling Simon that he needed to repent, he goes on and tells him, you need to pray to God that He will forgive you. And Philip understood the importance of sometimes having somebody else pray for you. Or not Philip, but Simon. He says, he asked Peter, Peter, will you go to God in my behalf? And oftentimes when someone comes forward, even something that's not even publicly known, uh, they come forward because they understand and appreciate the fact 
that when the church prays together in your behalf, that's a powerful, powerful tool. But never forget the, the fact of verse 9 right here. The promise is there. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as we move on, one final group of people I want to talk about. And what about coming from another congregation? It may surprise you because of the history of this particular congregation, but almost every single person who is here in our assembly today, except for a few, have come from another congregation. Uh, we started with our core group of people, about um, 30 or 40 people when this all began, and, and um, we, of course, have converted others and baptized others and brought them in as new babes in Christ, but the majority of the people who are members of this congregation came from another congregation, either within the driving distance of this area or because they moved here. So I think it's important we understand and appreciate the fact that uh, there is something that the Bible says about becoming a member of a located congregation. We sometimes refer to it as identifying ourselves with them or joining that particular congregation to work with them. Um, I put up this particular verse because it gives us a good example of the fact that even the Apostle Paul understood that when he was in a certain town, he wanted to, he wanted to be a part of the local congregation there. Now that particular passage, they didn't want him, uh, but that's a different story. But the point is, he was making an effort to be a part of the church there. There's no such thing in the Bible as wandering Christians. Uh, there's no such thing as Christians at large in the Bible. There's no such thing we read about in the Bible where uh, we might call someone a floating Christian. But instead, every Christian was supposed to be a part of the local church, first of all, because they needed to be involved in the work of that church. They have a responsibility to work in that church. And secondly, a Christian who is a part of the flock needs to be under the shepherd's care. There's the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, but also the elders of this congregation have a responsibility, and you need to submit yourself under their particular shepherding so they can help you in any way that they can. My point is that if you are someone who is visiting with us and you're looking for a church home, uh, it's important that you identify and let us know that you want to become a part of this congregation. The procedure is very simple. All you have to do is let one of the elders know. Uh, it, it's helpful to the whole congregation if you make some kind of public response so people can see who you are and they can get to know you quicker. But yet... I want to make sure we understand that there's no such thing as a Christian at large, but instead the Bible expects us to be a part of the family of God. Uh, there should be no orphans in the Lord's church. Instead, we should be with our family. We should be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this morning, as we come to the conclusion of our lesson, really we're extending three invitations. The first invitation is to those who are not Christians. If you're here today and you have never believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never confessed the name of Jesus with your tongue, if you've never been buried in the watery grave of baptism, then you need to do so today before it's everlastingly too late. And once you do that, 
Once we understand your, your faith and understand your repentance and hear your confession and witness you being buried in the watery grave of baptism, you become a member of this church then, right then. Nothing else needs to happen. Because once you become a Christian, you've been added to the Lord's church. That's the first invitation this morning. And if you're not a Christian today, I, oh, I hope you respond. The second invitation is to those who, like I said, is a erring child of God. Someone who's been absent for a long period of time. Someone who perhaps uh, needs to make some corrections in their life. But yet at the same time, that needs to happen. There's no limitation. There's no statutes of limitations on sin. Just because a period of time passes, whether it be one year, five years, ten years, or even thirty years, there's no statutes of limitation on sin. It needs to be taken care of. And in every congregation, in every typical congregation, there is somebody who has unresolved thing. They need to deal with God and with the congregation. Even if a long period of time has passed, there may be members who have forgotten, but God hasn't forgotten. And then the third invitation for those who are looking for a church home and, and, and they understand and appreciate the fact that they need to be a part of a local body. Please, if you'll let me or one of the elders know after the end of service that you want to be a part of the family here, or if you would like to respond publicly, that would be perfectly all right. But however, you fall in those groups of category. If you're here today, we hope that you'll respond. But as obviously, the invitation is open to all. So if there's some other need you may have this morning, we certainly hope that you'll come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.